Take your Bible tonight and turn with me to Titus chapter number 2. Titus chapter number 2. The, the song that you sang this evening certainly does fit well with what we will spend our time and energy focusing on this evening. You know, we do live in a world that is far more interested in our conduct than they are our creed. So let me say that again. We, we live in a world that is more interested in our conduct than they are our creed. So they, they, they sometimes, you know, we put this in, in simple phrases. You know, someone doesn't care how much you know until they know how much you care. But really what they're, what they're interested in is what does your creed have to do really with your conduct? And should there be a difference in the conduct of a person whose life is by statement um, given over to be a follower of Jesus Christ who is to be our everything? Um, I read a story in one of my commentaries um, and the the writer of the commentary said, said it this way. He said, in the summer of 1805, this was a time, of course, when when. Indian reservations were being consolidated and moved and a lot of things were happening to different tribes and populations. And there were a number of chiefs and warriors that met in a council at Buffalo Creek, New York, and they were gathered together to hear a presentation of the gospel message. It was presented by an evangelist, a speaker named Mr. Crum, and he was from the Boston Missionary Society. And after the sermon was given, this presentation of the gospel, um, one of the leaders of the tribes by the name of Red Jacket, um, one of the leading chiefs, uh, came and said, among other things, these, these words or words to this effect. Mr. Crum, you say that there's but one way to worship and serve the great spirit. If there is but one religion, why do you white people differ so much about it? Why not all agree as you can all read the same book? That's a good question. And then he went on and he said, Brother, we are told that you have been preaching to the white people in this place. These people are our neighbors. We are acquainted with them. We will wait a little while and see what effect your preaching has upon them. If we find it does them good, makes them honest, and less disposed to cheat Indians, we will then consider again what you have had to say. That's some pretty insightful commentary regarding the message of the gospel, our creed. He's saying, okay, you have a creed, I get that, and and it may be a good creed, but let's back up just a little bit. Let's pause on jumping into the adoption of this creed until we see What kind of impact does your creed actually have on your conduct? Again, the idea is that our conduct is the validation of our creed. And I would submit, once our conduct changes, our creed becomes credible. Once our conduct changes, our creed becomes credible. We have been addressing the matter of change over the past few Sunday evenings. 
And change, again, is one of those things that some people more readily seek and adopt than others. But every person in this room who claims the name of Jesus Christ should be a person who welcomes in some way, shape, or form the powerful change that is to come about in the life of those who are followers of Christ. We used to sing a song, and we sang it years ago. We haven't sung it for years, but the song was, there's been a great change since I've been born again. Did you ever sing that song when you were a kid? And, and we would have a lot of fun with the song. I'd sing it oftentimes with junior high boys. We'd split them up in groups, and you'd point at different people who'd yell out different parts, and there's been a great change since I've been born again. Well, that is supposed to be the reality, the residual impact of what we have now adopted as our creed. When a person comes to know Jesus Christ, there is a real change, a dynamic change that takes place. And now, if we take that a step further, not only are we the changed But as is our sermon title tonight, we become the agents of change. We actually become those by which change occurs in the lives of others. In so many different places, the Bible gives us the understanding, whether directly or by implication, that we are ambassadors for Christ. Okay, we're his representative. We're his, oftentimes we hear his hands, his feet. We're, we're the mouthpiece of the gospel. How beautiful are the feet of them that share the gospel of peace. Well, what is all that saying? All of that is saying is that you and I actually become the agents by which God is working change. Not exclusively or not to be limited to our lives, but then our lives become the means by which other lives additionally change. Your Bibles are open right now to Titus chapter 2. Really, the Apostle Paul, again, writing to a younger pastor, Titus, and what we refer to at times are the the pastoral epistles. These things have broad-ranging impact, and and certainly they're, they're, they're written to people just like you and me, although they do have some specific implications for pastors. But, but I do think that sometimes we might look at a pastor and we say, well, those things apply to you, like the qualifications for pastoral ministry. He actually covers some of those in Titus chapter 1, just like he would have covered with a, a young pastor, Timothy, in the letters written to him. But we should all stand back just a little bit and say, hey, these are the basics of Christianity that should be true for every believer. And if these things are true for believers, then they should also give consideration to pastoral ministry. So don't look at the pastoral epistles in such a way where we say, you know, that really doesn't apply to me because I'm not a pastor and I'm never going to be a pastor. We, We might look at these things and say, hey, those are good qualifications for Christian living that I should consider for myself personally, no matter what our our vocation or calling may be. And the first thing that he's going to do, the first thing that we'll look at tonight, is we're going to look at what he refers to as sound doctrine. All of these things are going to be connected to how can I become a more effective agent of change? And that should give some thunderous thought to what we're about to consider. Okay, so sound doctrine, the first thing. Look at Titus chapter 2, verse number 1. Titus chapter 2, verse number 1. But speak thou, speak thou the things which become 
sound doctrine. Now we're going we're gonna to break that verse down a little bit further as we go through um, these thoughts tonight. But let's first of all give some, some at least uh, acknowledgement to what he's saying that, that Titus is supposed to do. And then I would say by implication, this is something that all of us can participate in. He says, okay, Titus, speak the things which become sound doctrine. And if we're trying to produce change in the lives of others, we have to ask, okay, what kind of changes are we seeking to secure? Okay, I, I want to see change take place in a person's life. Okay, on what basis do we want to see that change come about? And Paul gives Titus the answer. Okay, we're going to talk. He's going to talk about behavior, conduct. But he says, speak the things that are sound doctrine. The word sound, it means healthy, wholesome. This is solid. This is something that's not going to disappoint. Speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. Okay, this is solid, healthy, wholesome teaching. He's saying that the instruction is supposed to lead us down to logical conclusions. Titus, speak the things which are wholesome things. Now, the other thing that, that we also take, not just by implication, but, but Paul is saying it. In fact, look, look back just a little bit. If you have your Bibles open, look back in Titus chapter 1 and look at verse number, um, look at verse number 14. Titus chapter, aren't you thankful you're inside right now? That wonderful. Um, Titus chapter 1, verse 14, not giving heed to Jewish fables. Jewish fables. Okay, where did that come from? Um, we, were at the, um, we were at the Temple Institute in Jerusalem uh, several years ago. And this is a place where they are working to secure items that would actually be placed in a rebuilt temple. And they began to explain through a presentation, and I'm just a part of it, through a presentation, um, the origins of things. And then the Temple Mount, and, and they explained that God threw out. Now this is coming from the Temple Institute in Jerusalem. That God from heaven cast out the creation stone. And that from the creation stone that God cast out of the, the portals of heaven... All of creation began to form, and the Ark of the Covenant actually set atop of the creation stone cast out of heaven through which all things were created. And, and as soon as they're saying this, I'm like, whoa, wait, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was void and without form, and darkness was upon the face of the earth. I, I'm thinking Genesis chapter 1. So I just, you know, like I raised my hand, you know question teacher I said um I've never read this in the creation account in in the the scripture I mean this is the Pentateuch these are this is this is part of the writings of Moses okay so um I've never read that as part of where did you get that because the Bible says God you know spoke the worlds into existence and so where did you come up with that and they said well this came from our teachers this came from the elders, so to speak. This came from the wise men that have actually passed on these traditions of men. Do you know what Paul's refuting here when he's writing to young Timothy? He says, hey, listen, okay, in contrast to that, that's how he really opens up um, chapter 2. But instead of this, Timothy, or Titus, don't teach that instead of that, but you teach things that become sound doctrine." He says, don't give yourself to these Jewish fables. And then look at what he said. And commandments of men. 
commandments of men. Now, these are the things that like, wow, where does that come from? Again, don't misunderstand. I, I feel like we, we cover this often and appropriately so. We're not saying that a place can't have rules, policies, regulations. This is how you do it. But he's saying, now there are those that are teaching, hey, listen, our commands supersede the commands of Scripture, and they do not. And then he says, okay, not giving the heed to Jewish fables, commandments of men that turn from the truth. Wow, that's not healthy, sound teaching, sound doctrine. Look at verse number 16. He says, does the same thing. They profess that they know God. Okay, we know God. We're going to teach you. He says, but in works, their actions, their conduct, their conduct is not consistent with their creed. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. But instead of that, Titus, that's not supposed to be you. Don't do that. But you, Titus, you teach those things which become sound doctrine. You know, any church, ours certainly, any church is supposed to search out those things that you, that I, we share a responsibility to seek out those things which are wholesome, healthy doctrine. He's saying, listen, Titus, he's not claiming that Titus has ever, has ever been or ever will be perfect, but he says there is a perfect truth. Titus, your job is to teach those things that become sound doctrine. He starts the chapter with that. He ends the chapter with that. If you look a little bit further, Titus 2, verse number 15, these things speak and exhort. And we don't like this next word as much. He says, okay, these things speak. Okay, I get that. That, that word even has to do speak. It has to do with even in some conversational aspect, just in your regular speaking. Not, not exclusively to your preaching, although it has that certain, certain ring to it. But listen, in your conversation, when you're talking, he says, these are the things that you're supposed to do and exhort. Exhorting is just kind of cheering somebody on. Come on, you can do this. Let, let's go, 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 go. It's just exhorting someone. It's, it's helping run alongside the, the pericoleto, so to speak, the one called alongside. I'm going to cheer you on is, is what he's saying to, Tim, to Titus to do. And then he gets to that word that is sometimes more challenging for me personally and maybe for you. He says, okay, speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. We, we've heard a similar implication when he's speaking to, to Timothy. Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou and He's, he's, he's cheering and, and instructing Titus in the same vein. He says, Titus, you, you have to do the work of rebuking. It's not because Titus does or doesn't like something. It's Titus, as you're teaching those things that become sound doctrine, you have to have the, the stand-up backbone, so to speak, to say, okay, the word says this, and we're not doing this, and so... Here's the, here's the loving biblical rebuke. Okay, you're doing that? Stop doing that. that. That's a rebuke. Nobody likes that. I don't like to receive them. You don't, I suppose, like to receive them. 
But isn't there something valuable about the person who has retained, no matter how old, no matter how, how far down the road they have gone, isn't there something wonderful about a person who's retained the, so to speak, elasticity, the ability to absorb something that we need to absorb? I needed that rebuke. Aren't there times in your life, there certainly are in mine, when someone has cared enough about me to actually give me a rebuke that kept me from going down some path that had I concluded in that direction, it would have been nothing but shipwreck. It would have been problematic. It would have been a real issue. And so someone who cares enough about me, they, they offer a rebuke. And what he's saying, all right, this is your job, Titus. This is part and parcel with sound doctrine. He says, okay, so we're, we're in a sense, he's kind of giving some instruction to Timothy in chapter, Titus in chapter one. And now he's going congregational in chapter two. He says, okay, teach the things that become sound doctrine. And then notice some of the practical things that their creed should impact. He says, look at verse number two. That the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith and charity and patience. The aged women, likewise, that they be in good behavior as becometh holiness. Not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. Okay, so he says, all right, this is what you should be because of your creed. Your conduct should, should at least in part, look similar to the things that we're mentioning here. And he says, okay, sober. That, that word literally carries the idea of vigilant. It also had implications regarding the use of wine. He said, hey, be sober. He goes on, he says, be grave. That idea carries the idea, sometimes I think we confuse that. Oh, he's such a grave person. What, what Paul is not saying to Titus is, Titus, you should never laugh and the old men should never laugh. The, the old aged men, they should not have a They shouldn't do that. And, and, um, and that's not what the idea is communicating. It means that, that a person knows how to be serious, to take something in an appropriate situation and give it the weight and sobriety, so to speak, that it deserves. This is not someone, again, who never laughs, but rather someone who is appropriate in the given situation. We, we might use the word, wow, they're appropriately dignified. They, they know how to conduct themselves in appropriate settings. He goes on, he says, temperate. That's the opposite of careless. Temperate. They're, they're not careless. Not careless with their life, their lifestyle, their testimony. This is knowing your purpose and willing to do what's necessary to accomplish it. Temperate. Sound in faith. That is simply uncorrupt. Sound in charity, not afraid to love. And he's speaking to the aged men. Um, some, some of the older men here grew up at a time, don't raise your hands, but if I asked you, how many of you never really heard your dad utter the words, I love you? There would be men in here that say, listen, he never said it. Now we know he did, but they, they just were not the words that my dad uttered. Well, I, I'm saying, I, I think he's, he's making a... a some instructive words here that are saying, don't make it hard for somebody to know that part of your life is agape, charity, love. He's saying this is something that you should not be afraid to demonstrate. People should see, man, that guy knows how to love one another. Amen to that. Okay. And then he says sound in patience. 
Sound and patience. The ability to stand is really what that means. Patience, it carries the idea of endurance. That they know how to go through hardship. These are all the things that are supposed to be part and parcel with the, the older men. And then he says, the women also. He says, likewise, okay, take all those things that, that I've said to the men. And here's a couple additional things he says for women. Likewise, behavior that becometh holiness. Remember that word, becometh. We're going to look back at that again. Um, those are actions consistent with who you are. Not false accusers. This now carries the idea of they're not slandering others. Do you know how today, um, a younger generation today would say, oh, they're throwing shade, okay? Um, we, don't, we don't normally use, we older, you know, uh, uh, us older crowd, we don't usually say that. But a younger crowd, they, oh yeah, they're throwing some shade. Okay, the idea behind that is to, to just slide something in that's rather cutting. It's, it was very subtle, but the person to whom you said it knew exactly what you were saying. He's saying, hey, listen, okay, the aged women, the, the mature ladies, he says, that should not be part of, oh, well, not, not a little question that really is saying a lot more than the question. And we're trying to make a statement um, that everybody gets what I'm really trying to say. And what we're doing is he's, he's saying, listen, that should not be, not slandering others. I'm not given to much wine. Again, that would be similar to the sober that is directed to the men. These are the things that should already be part of the mature believer's life. This is part and parcel of what was directed toward us in Hebrews chapter 5, verse number 12. For when the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. And are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat, for everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he's a babe, but strong meat. Okay, this is what Paul is saying to Titus. Titus, this is what the older people are supposed to be. It's summed up in verse number 14. Strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even by those who by reason of use, wow, they're putting these things into practice, have their senses exercised, to discern both good and evil. Verse number 14, that's where Titus is supposed to just encourage the church with the, the mature believers in the body. The right agent of change can handle some strong meat because they have put to practice, exercised their senses, spiritually speaking, to discern right and wrong. Okay, that is um, part of our agent of change, this sound doctrine. Look a little bit further. And notice now the next step. Not only do you have now as a possessor of sound doctrine, you've got it. Now we have this sacred duty. We have a sacred duty. I have now this responsibility. What do I do with the creed? Okay, I got it. I'm able to discern. I've exercised. I can handle some strong meat. Now what do I do with that? We have a sacred duty. The congregation has received the truth. They're now supposed to be the agents of change in the lives of younger people in the church. So notice what it says, verses 2 through 6, Titus chapter 2. That they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men likewise, okay, hey, listen, all of these things, there would be similar application to the young men. Young, young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded. Like they can't be these, like, I don't know that they're just living in some pretend world. 
I mean, how many young men today are captivated by something that really is not real world? To be sober-minded says, okay, um, what am I going to have to do to prepare to lead a family, to take a wife, to have a vocation, to rear children? What does my life need to look like to be sober-minded? The implications of that little statement that the apostle makes to Titus, who Titus is supposed to make to the aged men and women, to be sober-minded. Like, listen, you're not living in a fantasy world. He's saying, this is what you're going to have to communicate to the young men. They, they didn't have video games back then, but man, oftentimes, not saying that a young woman is not engaged in video games, but not nearly, statistically speaking, to the same degree as is a young man. And sometimes young men today, their world is wrapped up in some pretend place. I'm not saying they can't have some relaxation, some enjoyment, some whatever. I'm not saying that. But I am saying, you better teach the young men, Paul saying to Titus, Titus saying to the aged men, you better teach those young men. They have to learn to be sober-minded. There's something beyond the pretend world. And are they ready to address it? These are big implications. Okay, this is, this is like, whoa, this is a sacred duty. Remember, when, when we're running a race, we have a leg on the race to run. And, and I'm, not a, I'm not a runner, and I'm not part of a relay team, but I know how it works. I know that there is, if you're running the first leg, and you got to get it to the person in the second leg, you know you've got this baton in your hand, and, and there's only this little section of space, this little place, and i got to get that baton into their hand, and they, they, if it's dropped, you're done. Disqualified. So now I've got this, this window of time, and he's saying, you aged men, get the baton of truth, of, of sobriety, of sober-mindedness. Get that into the hand of the young men. Okay, ladies, you've got some things that you have now. You're possessors of these things. You've got to get these in the hands of these young women. Pass it on. Wow. He's saying you are called to be the agent of change. These are the sacred duties, so to speak, that he's calling them to. Have you ever thought about the unique place that God has positioned campus church as it pertains to Titus chapter 2. The really special place. I mean, I know that, that as we t- oftentimes say, churches, all of them are unique and all of them have special opportunities and, and special positioning from the Lord to do what he's called that church to do. I, I know of none, um, just like campus church, I mean, literally, in a, in a matter of weeks, this auditorium is going to be filled with people who have to have a baton placed in their hand in a very short period of time. And you and I are called to be those aged people who have been able to receive something and then say, we've got a solemn responsibility. This is a sacred duty I've got to get this, and I've got to get some truth into the hand of someone who is going to run the next leg of the race. And there's going to be, I mean, I'm not using a, a word just to, to be grand with the word. There's going to be thousands of them in this room. And we're called to be the agent of change. And sometimes I fear that we may be so fearful of change that we have, in a sense, set ourselves aside 
to become an agent of change. It becomes so fraught with, well, if we change this, then what is this going to mean? And what is that going to mean? And, and uh, change is happening all the time, continually. Now, again, we're not talking about sound doctrine. We're not talking about those things that are true for all people, all places, and all times. But if campus church can never adapt to 2023, then how in the world are we going to be ready for 2024 with a a timeless message? I was thinking, I I mean to cast no disparaging comment. I truly mean this, but I'm probably speaking beyond my full understanding, and I know there would be many that would understand it far better than would I. But there are two, two groups of people and then some splinter groups from them, but the Mennonite group and then the, the Amish groups have, for, for reasons that I don't fully comprehend, they chose a period of time. They locked in at a period of time. And so, so buttons are okay, but, but, but other things like, again, forgive the silliness of this, but a zipper would not. But a button would be okay because of the time period with which they have said this is the time that we're going to lock in. And so if they would have locked in in the early 1800s, then, then they're, they're just the same as everybody else. But, but then, I don't know, so, something else happened and something, something went beyond the carriage and the horse. Now there may be reasons Quite frankly, there may be good reasons. So again, I'm not trying to overstate this or pretend that I understand the, the Mennonite or the Amish culture. So please forgive the, the, the lack of, of full study on this. But the challenge that I oftentimes have is why did that become the ideal time? And we lock in there and that presents some measure of godliness, of, of value, of health. But... but 10 years later didn't. And what about prior to that? Why not, why not go back further than that? And why, why live in a house rather than in a hut or, or whatever? Are you tracking? Do you understand? At times, I think what churches do is churches say, this is the ideal time. Don't ever change a hymn book because the hymn book is locked in time. We finally found the exact things that are supposed to be in a hymn book. And so if you ever change the hymn book, then you have done some disservice to the whole. Well, did we just stumble here in our day? Did we just stumble on the perfect hymn book? And so we can't change the hymn book because because if we change the hymn book, we have done some disservice to the... I, I, I don't think that, that that is sound thinking. That may be more consistent with the traditions of men than, than healthy, sound doctrine. He's saying you have a sacred duty, and that duty is to pass on what you have received. And then there is to be what we'll wrap up with, this sincere delivery. Sincere delivery. Okay, look down at verse number seven. In all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works. Isn't that beautiful? Talk about a great line to underline in your Bible. In all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works. 
in doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Okay, the Greek word for pattern here, showing yourself a pattern, the Greek word is tupos. It's the word that we would get type from, a type of, a picture of. Okay, so present yourself as the pattern. Like, okay, I, I wanna be like that. That's really what he's saying. Okay, so you present yourself, he's saying, to a Titus, you present yourself, and then by inference, you aged to, to the younger, you, you older men, you, you ladies that, listen, you have now some maturity about you. He says, you show yourself as the type, as the example, so that they look at you, and if they even dared to say, well, let me tell you why I don't believe that, like, oh, your lifestyle makes them ashamed. Like, man, I tried to, I tried to, you know, get this end run around, but man, their creed radically impacts their conduct. And you know what I'm noticing in them? I really want in me. I, I preached several years ago at a church that really was geared up um, because they were positioned right by a military base. And they did a lot of things um, every Sunday to cater to the military. And their church was, I mean, it was, it was so focused on the military, and to me, appropriately so. They, they didn't leave off other things. They didn't forsake other things, but like, wow, they had a ministry on the base and a ministry in their church, and it was really quite profound because, because the Lord kept sending military personnel to them. Um, I... I I preached at a church in Okinawa, and that church in Okinawa, same kind of thing. It was really a military-driven church because the base was there, and, and so missionaries would go and, and minister primarily because that's who the Lord kept sending them. Doesn't it make sense that at least a, a, a primary focus of campus church would be to live as an example to those that the Lord keeps sending to us. And by God's grace, I, I pray he continues to. Well, sometimes they don't want to be at campus church. I know. I, I'm, we're not talking about that. Well, sometimes I want to be at, I know. But you know, th this is our time, our day. This is our sacred duty. Lord, I have to get these things into the hands of those that are going to carry this for the next leg. How am I going to do that? It is, it's one of the reasons, this is a really simple thing, and, and I'm, I hope you know I'm not trying to just make a commercial. It's one of the reasons that I pray a place that we heard over and over and over again tonight, Master Clubs, it's one of the reasons why I hope Master Clubs is filled with people who are here year-round at Campus Church to have a college student who's here for just a few years stand next to and watch your example of loving investment into the lives of boys and girls.
And how sad it is if Campus Church says, well, the college kids can do that. What a missed opportunity. Honestly, I was standing back behind, I was greeting the baptismal candidates um, before the service, and there's a whole bunch of chairs that are lined up on either side of the, the area back there. And I'm looking at those chairs, I'm like, what in the world? Where do these chairs go? And I'm trying to figure out, where do those chairs go? I was looking at Dr. Barnhart down here, he probably knows exactly where those chairs go. They go in the choir. And do you know what I would love to see? People that God has given the ability to take a voice and magnify him fill a choir loft with with some college kids sprinkled throughout. And they're filling a choir loft for multiple reasons, but one of which is to say, Lord, I want to be an example. And to do that, I have to rub shoulders with college kids. Um... Brian Yoey is probably in here somewhere. Brian told me the other day, he said, we, we have still connected. I mean, since we first did, you know, the, the pizza and games night we did with college students? Just have some kids over to your house, four college students, have some pizza, play some games. That was it. There was nothing organized, nothing big. We just, you just had four college kids. You have no idea how much response we got, both from year-round campus church members and, and those that are here for a few years. And Brian said, we have stayed connected with that group of four college students. I mean, we just formed like this group, and, and they're just part of our family, so to speak, now, because, because they, they were, you know, like they touched shoulders. They're doing life together. Last year, we did life share groups with college students, and actually, honestly, not just with college, with anybody who wants to, on Wednesday nights, and um, quite amazing, the connection that, that year-round campus church members made with those who were here for a few years, because on a Wednesday night, during the service, they took Bible truth and just discipled a group of five or six college, mostly college students. See, if, if we're going to be the agent of change, we have to embrace those that God has given us opportunity to influence. I, I will never forget this. Uh, my brother Rob's here, and, and our grandmother lived with us the last, I don't know, eight years or so of her life. And our grandmother just her body racked with rheumatoid arthritis, just crippled with it. Her, her hands were like this, literally. And um, her body just, to, to watch my grandmother walk was, was uh, healthy for your prayer life, okay? Because when she'd walk, you'd just be, Lord, don't let her fall. Don't let her fall. I can remember some early images that I have of my grandmother whose body was, was plagued with rheumatoid arthritis from the time that we would say a relatively young woman. Some of my early memories of her was my grandmother down on the floor with me as a kid. And I can remember the time as a young child when my grandmother could no longer get on the floor because she couldn't get back up again. And so she adapted. She figured out other ways to, so to speak, get on the floor with us as kids. Campus Church... We have to figure out ways to get on the floor, so to speak. 
well, that takes a lot of time. I'm a busy person, and my ministry is really, um, you know, through the course of the week. Our ministry is our life. How might God be, I don't know, making the nest a little less comfortable for you right now? Like, oh, I used to be so comfortable, and oh, something's changing in the nest. That's because he's saying it's time to spread your wings so that you can fly. There are some things that God is calling us to do that help us become those agents of change. Don't be, don't be nervous. I think sometimes when we talk about change, and especially when pastors talk about change, you know, we have the conversation on the drive home, what is he talking about? Okay. We're talking about you. Talking about me. God, what is it that you are changing in me that you're asking me to do so that I can become a more effective agent of change? I'll close with this. It was about 10 years ago, maybe just a little bit more than 10 years ago. There is a castle in Milan and um, there's a large room. In fact, I, I looked up some of the images of it. There's a large room in this castle. And um, they were redoing the room. So workers are in there. They're going to redo this, this large ceiling. So they have, you know, just, just scrapers. You know, they're scraping stuff off from it and peeling stuff off. And, and um, you know, as they're peeling this stuff off, they see that there are images that are painted underneath this image. And, you know, I don't know if you've read about this, but there are a lot of different articles that talk about the fact that what they were scraping off was layers and layers of whitewash that had covered up a mural painted by Leonardo da Vinci. And it had been there all along for some 500 plus years, a mural painted by da Vinci that finally some workmen with some some scrapers, you know, and, and lo and behold, there it is. Sometimes we get so layered with the unnecessary thing. The thing that we become so focused on becomes, well, I'm going to make this so much prettier and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to whitewash this. You know, if you think about how God, how Jesus on earth used whitewashed, it's not a really great implication. And sometimes what God is doing in our lives is he's just bringing the scraper and he's peeling back some of those things that have actually masked the, the painting, so to speak, the image that is to be imprinted in our hearts, and that is the image of Jesus Christ. There is one who's continually doing a work of change in us. And by God's grace, we will do some personal evaluation. Lord, what are you changing in me that you might use me as an agent of change?